Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, March 30th, we are studying Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders have condemned Jesus, and now, just as Jesus has foretold, they deliver him over to the Gentiles, to Pontius Pilate, as Jesus continues his journey toward the cross for the salvation of sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wergau. Pastor Wergau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Always good to be with you, Tim. As we get started this morning, let's talk context. We're starting Mark 15 today. What do we need to know about the Gospel of Mark and the immediate context going into today's text? Yeah, we see this as in Mark, um, part of the Mark's telling of the Passion account. Uh, you know, so I think a lot of times we see these as episodes, and they can be read that way. Uh, our uh, liturgy even has this kind of as a harmonization that can be used for for whatever purposes you want, where where, where these all kind of track in, in time. Uh, and if you see it kind of like episodic, you know, going through these stages or these episodes, perhaps starting with Jesus, um, uh, the upper room with the institution, uh, the Last Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper, and then moving to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then things uh, start to to pick up pace as Jesus is then um, uh, betrayed and arrested, uh, handed over uh, to, the, to, the, to, to the Jewish authorities. And now, then, you find after his trial before them, this moving uh, on to the uh, to Pilate, which is a different stage and a different um, jurisdiction, if we can use that word, which I think we can use that word when we're talking about this. Jesus has been arrested. Um, when 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 Jesus goes from the from 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 the, the Sanhedrin to the to the uh, to Pilate, uh, he's entering from his own people who are rejecting him over into the um, into the uh, uh, civil realm of Roman jurisdiction to the governor, right? To the Roman governor who will be the one then who will ultimately hand down the sentence uh, of crucifixion. And I think that's a key point when we kind of get to this leading up to, to Jesus' crucifixion, that it's, it's there with Pilate that you have, have the sentence given, which will lead to that specific death. This is the first time, I think we'll point this out in Mark's gospel, where the word crucify is used, where we have this understanding of this specific kind of death taking place, uh, which is significant both to the Old Testament um, uh, uh, concerning the death of, of, of Christ, and then also how Jesus predicted his own uh, passion and death, that things, the scriptures are being fulfilled. Things are coming to a fulfillment in this particular uh, course of action, this way these things are, are taking place. So it's, it's not an accident that Jesus ends up before Pontius Pilate to be tried in this way so that he would die in the way that he does, even particularly that Old Testament passage. Where is that in Deuteronomy where, where it talks about the curse being one who's hanged on a tree and Paul picks that up? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a very significant part. That's um, in a particular, that's Deuteronomy. Oh, I was just reading it. So I got to find it now in my notes here. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Uh, now, this is kind of speaking more. This is the second law. Of course, this is God handing down these these um, laws and these, these ways that his people will will be living in the promised land, but it says if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hangman is cursed by God. Now that's true in and of itself, but then Paul adds on to this in Galatians 3.13, which is relating it to Christ's death on the cross being hung on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So again, the Bible is very specific, uh, both in the Old Testament, but also then how it's interpreted in the New Testament. The, the manner of Christ's death is not accidental, and it's not incidental to the whole thing. Uh, and this picks up to, very familiar with the idea of Numbers 21 as being kind of prefiguring to, to Christ. This is the serpent 
the fiery serpent that's set up on the pole. And, and Jesus said in John 3, right, uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And picks up even more on it in John 12, 32, when he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then in verse 33 of John 12, it goes on, John gives the commentary. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So it's very specific about this death, which is important because Pilate's the one that can do that can give that 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 um, that punishment. Uh, the Jews could stone Jesus. In fact, there's a, there's times um, such as in John eight where um, the Jews pick up stones and they're they're about ready to to stone him. Or when he's in Nazareth and he causes the offense in Nazareth to the people there, and they want to throw him off the cliff. But those are not the times that Jesus is is destined to die, uh, and not the manner that Jesus is destined to die in. He's going to die by being crucified. So once again, we see in Mark 15, the scriptures being fulfilled, something that was has been going on throughout this passion narrative. So we pick up the text, Mark 15, beginning at verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have, them, have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. That is the text for today, Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. Pastor Wargau, those first couple of verses, at least the first verse, really serves as a transition from the trial that Jesus had been undergoing before the Sanhedrin into the trial with Pilate. Take us into this transition that Mark gives us, and then tell us a little bit more about this main character here, Pilate. Sure thing, yeah. Yeah, like I said a little bit ago, we see a change in jurisdiction. That is, this is, if we look at this as these different episodes that are taking place, this is kind of the final stage of, of the criminal proceedings. Uh, Dr. Vells in his commentary on this does a really nice job of kind of laying out how these trials actually took place. And we find out that we do know and we do see very clearly that Jesus' trial is completely a, a what's the term, kangaroo court, right? It's, it's you know, it's, it's not legit at all. But the proceedings are the way that trials would take place at that time. Now, that doesn't mean it was a fair trial. It wasn't. Um, but it is the way that things would go. So you'd have the, the sense where there would be the local policing authority that would be the ones to take someone in um, and interrogate, seize him. And they would be then handed up to a higher authority. In this case, it'd be the Jewish setting of the, uh, uh, the Sanhedrin, but then they're delivered up even more, transferring the jurisdiction to another higher authority that is the Sanhedrin were under the authority of the Roman occupancy, the Roman government, right? And so this is this is the handing over to this higher authority, kind of for the final the uh, uh, final case being made in Jesus' trial. Now, the interesting thing is in the Sanhedrin, the case with the Sanhedrin and the Jewish uh, councils, uh, there are all these false witnessing stepping forward, so much to the fact that then they would have cause to then through these false witnesses, bring Jesus forward then to Pilate. Now, Pilate stands kind of uh, outside of this uh, and, and is seeing this kind of, he, he doesn't have a beef against Jesus like the Jewish authorities have been having continually um, throughout the Gospels, right? So Jesus is kind of uh, teaching and preaching and and will come up in our text. The the, the Jewish authorities are, are um, 
jealous or envious uh, about Jesus. Look, the whole crowd's go, the whole world's going after him. Uh, he's criticizing uh, their legalism and criticizing um, ultimately the fact that they do not receive him as the Messiah or the Christ. Um, Pilate stands as this kind of outside observer of this, and so when they bring him to Jesus, he he's known the case that's kind of coming forward. And he sees nothing wrong with this man. He can find no charge to give him the death penalty, as opposed to the other ones that would come into his court, um, come before his judgment, where a clear case could be made and he can say, yes, guilty and sentenced to death, such as the case with Barabbas, which we'll get to here in just a little bit. I also think there's something a little bit more uh, theological underneath all of this, too, that we can really... uh, uh, take take out of this, and that is well, well, two things, and I think the other one we'll hit to when we get to, to who this pilot character is. But but the first is this is all in line with how Jesus predicted these things would happen. The fact that Jesus goes from the Jewish authorities to the secular authorities, or I should say, the Gentile authorities, because in Mark ten thirty three, when Jesus is giving hit the passion uh, prediction of his of his death, he says, "See, we're going up to Jerusalem." And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and, again, deliver him over to the Gentiles. So here we see exactly what Jesus predicted is taking place. The fact that he's not put to death by the um, chief priests and the scribes, but he's being handed over to, to Pilate, to the Gentiles, who will condemn him to death in the way that Roman um, that the Romans... Uh, conducted their capital punishment and the death penalty, that is, through through the specific death of crucifix, crucifixion. Right. So, I mean, I think one of the things that you see was, certainly this is fulfilling what Jesus has said. It's fulfilling the scriptures. You, you see how everyone ends up against Jesus. They either desert him like the disciples or they end up against Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. They're all, it's all piling on Jesus. He's eventually going to be left alone bearing the sins of the world. I think that's part of the progression, the theological thing that's going on here. Pontius Pilate as a as a person is is a pretty important figure in the history of Christianity, in world history. It's it this this I'm reminded of of a it was my oldest son. He I don't think he was two years old yet. He was just learning how to talk, sitting in the back seat, facing backward, and I heard him babbling various words. Some of them I understood, some I didn't. And then as clear as day, he said Pontius Pilate. And it just blew me away. It's like, I have not read that Bible story to you, son. He learned it, though, from the creed. And and that's where we all learn the words Pontius Pilate as Christians. We say, say the creed each week, and Pontius Pilate is immortalized. In He's made infamous, I suppose, in the words of the creed. So tell us more about this person, Pontius Pilate. Right. And, and Pontius Pilate's the only other name besides... The Virgin Mary, right? I mean, that's kind of interesting. Those are the two names of people, other than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that are in that are in the creed. And yeah, so why does the Church include Pontius Pilate in the creed? Very important, I think, to understand that um, this confession of faith that we have and the scriptures that are given uh, are are set in the context of history, right? So, so we're not dealing with myths or cleverly designed, devised stories, but we're dealing with historical people and characters, including not only like Mary and Peter and, and, and all these ones that were early you know, Christians and apostles and mother of our Lord and such, but even those who are part of the secular, secular world. And, and, and that's wonderful to understand that our faith is built upon history. The word became flesh and dwelt among us means that Jesus stood on the ground in the Holy Land, uh, you know, almost two thousand years ago, it was was walking around, was doing these things, and and um, interacting with with other characters of history that are outside of the of the canon of Scripture, right? So we have the Gospels, but we also have other secular works that testify to the times, places, and people that were contemporaneous with with Jesus, including including Pontius Pilate. Um, Josephus uh, talks about uh, Pontius Pilate. So uh, Josephus is a, um, uh, a Jewish historian from um, from uh, the first century. Uh, speaks uh, and wrote um, both the um, uh, Jewish wars as well as the uh, Jewish antiquities. So these history books, including um, 
uh, quite a bit he has on Josephus. Another interesting thing about Josephus, which is really neat, is that uh, Josephus is another, or not Josephus, I should say, Pontius Pilate is another one of those examples where we have historical archaeological evidence that relates to this character that we have in our creeds and that we have mentioned in, in, in the Gospels. Uh, and that is that we actually have a, it was, it was discovered in 1961 in Caesarea, was actually found a, um, uh, an inscription that had Pontius Pilate's name on it, right? So, so our faith is not in, in some, again, myth or something that cannot be uh, supported by people, places, and things that history um, testifies to, even history outside of the historical gospels. Um, but, but then also, it's not simply that he's this historical figure, but he has got a key role that we confess in our creeds concerning our salvation. And that is he that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, that it is Pontius Pilate who um, is the one, the instrument used to give the sentence of, of suffering and death and crucifixion to our Lord, which will be, which will be the means by which God... Um, atones for the sins of the world. So uh, uh, obviously a key player uh, in the, in the history of salvation. Uh, very much so. And as you said, he gets, he's there in the creed, the one under whom Jesus suffers. So this text is part of that suffering that Jesus undergoes under Pilate. His trial starts as Mark records it with Pilate asking Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? That's the, the central charge that seems to be a question, at least for Pilate, Jesus responds, you have said so. Take us into the way that Mark introduces this trial before Pilate. Yeah, that's the accusation that's kind of brought forward. You know, are you the king of the Jews? What, what does that mean? I mean, this is the one where, where um, uh, you have you have something that you're bringing forward to Pilate that is that is an accusation that would give uh, Jesus uh, a reason for a sentence against Jesus. Uh, the reason I say that is you can't just bring any. Uh, any kind of accusation, they actually wouldn't care. Pilate wouldn't care much that he calls himself the son of God, right? That doesn't mean much to Pilate. Uh, it's blas blasphemous to the to the Jewish people, right? To to say I am, uh, you know, Yahweh or, or or something of that nature. Uh, for Pilate, that doesn't matter as much. He's not not as concerned, or or, or wouldn't have that really be a, a cause for cause for the death penalty. But 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 this accusation that he's the king of the Jews does bring up this touchy point that I guess Pilate would have in dealing um, and governing over this this people, this Jewish people. And you got to remember kind of the context here is Rome comes and occupies a place that already has people and temple and and uh, customs and, and they're going to rule over this specific group of people in their place. That's what Rome did. And so in one sense, Rome allowed a lot of peace and a lot of freedom for the people. However, uh, as with any time there's a governing authority, there was at that time, and we see this with Barabbas too, insurrection, right? And people people trying to topple the, the, the government that, that, that's there. Uh, and so this idea of the king of the Jews does does relate to that, I believe, that this, this fear that, that Jesus will be the one uh, that, that Jesus is possibly one that would be trying to overthrow Caesar, which relates, it's not in Mark, but um, uh, in one of the other gospels, and I can't remember off the top of my head, where the people cry out, we have no king but Caesar, right? We have no king but Caesar. Uh, uh, kind of appealing to that, to say, we want this Jesus done away with. Uh, he's nothing but nothing but trouble. Pilate then asking Jesus that, Jesus says, you have said so, which these are the last words that we're going to get from Jesus until he's on the cross. And so and I know we'll talk about Jesus' silence, but what do you, what do you make of Jesus' answer? You have said so. Right. It's, it's kind of, it's not what we would expect, right? And I, you know, you're right. We're going to talk about his silence a little bit more that he doesn't, he doesn't come out. He doesn't answer the way that we would answer, right? He doesn't say, um, Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. Yes, I'm the son of God. Uh, not even the same sense that he, he answers different for Pilate than he answers for the Sanhedrin. Um, part of it, I think, is understanding that he goes forward willingly. He's not going to give a defense, uh, 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 even though these charges or accusations are, are set up against him. But he's uh, going to go forth willingly, uh, willingly to the cross. Um, and, and, and so that, that, I think, is in part related to it. 
in how um, in how Jesus answers in, in a way we wouldn't expect him. You have said so that you know this is what you're saying because this is what the Jewish people are accusing uh, accusing me of, and, and this is the confession that actually is very true, but they're not. That is the Jewish authorities, the scribes, the the, the um, elders of the people are not willing to actually believe that this is that this is the case. If that makes mm. sense, yeah. Right, and and again, if Jesus simply says yes, Pilate's not going to understand that the way that it actually is true. Right. I mean that, and I think that's in that's in John's gospel where you get a longer conversation between Jesus and Pilate recorded, and Jesus mm-hmm. says, "My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, then my followers would be fighting." Right? That's mm-hmm. not the type of king that Jesus has come to be. And so I think you have said so. It invites Pilate to, you know, he he has to do a deeper look. He, Jesus isn't going to simply say yes or no because Pilate misunderstands the chief priests are misunderstanding, and and ultimately it's going to lead to his silence. Which, which as you said, this is this too is a part of the fulfilling of the scriptures that Jesus is doing. Isaiah talks about Jesus' silence before his as a sheep goes to slaughter, and I mean Pilate is said to be amazed. I I can't imagine another person standing trial before Pilate, hearing these accusations and saying nothing. This had to have been a first for Pilate. Yeah, I would think so. You know, um, and this is this is what people do when they're when they're accused, especially if they're accused falsely. Is the automatic thing is to give a defense, right? Uh, this this is unfair. This is even if the accusations are true, you know, we we are more about getting excuses or or, or than, than 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 speaking uh, the truth in these matters. But but Jesus goes forward silent. And and you're right. You mentioned Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The reason Jesus is silent is because he goes forward as the lamb. Uh, and, and you're right. I'm glad you brought up the, John, the, the conversation there's with John, right? And I mean, his kingdom is not of this world. His, it, it was so his people would be his um, subjects would be fighting for him. The fact of the matter is, though, is that what we see in Jesus' passion and in his trial is not only his silence and that he doesn't speak to his defense, even against false accusations, but you even have it that Jesus had in his power as the Son of God, right, uh, the ability to um, uh, free himself from from from. Uh, the accusations to, 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 you know, not only be silent but to to fight against Pilate and against the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, he he's the one that the wind and the seas obeyed his command, right? <laughs> and he could do all of these kind of things. But the fact is, again, leads to the willingness that he goes forward uh, as the the sacrifice for sins. And what I thought was very interesting is when you have that Isaiah 53, seven passage, you also have Isaiah 52, 15, which is the same suffering servant, uh, uh, section in Isaiah. Uh, and it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that, which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. So, So I think the idea of the King's mouths being shut leads to Pilate uh, it's amazement, right? He's never seen something like this before. This is not how uh, things normally take place. But we see what's taking place in the trial of Jesus is it all relates to that understanding that he's going forward as as the lamb, uh, the sacrifice for sin, the one who goes forth willingly and uncomplaining forth uh, because he's going forward in love to bear the sins of the people and to make payment for those sins. Yeah, a, a lamb goes uncomplaining forth, the the Paul Gerhardt hymn that we have often during Holy Week, perhaps even on Good Friday, that that this is how Jesus goes forth. And and even just to, you know, a bit of a compare and contrast to Jesus now compared to how he was in Holy Week, you know, these words from Jesus are the last that he speaks until he's on the cross. I mean, think of think of what he was doing previously when all of his opponents were coming forward against him in Holy Week. He was silencing them. He he was I mean, he was quick with his replies and and even sharp with his replies. And and yet here, when when push comes to shove and it's it's time to fulfill the scriptures and to save humanity, what does he do? He 
he silences himself for our sakes. And it, I mean, it, I think all of that just goes to to remind us that that this isn't Jesus being some sort of unwilling victim or some sort of, you know, oh, he just got caught up in the wrong place and wrong time. No, he's doing this on purpose, willingly, gladly to save you and me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, his hours come. It's a different time than when he was teaching in the synagogues or when he was doing the miracles and the healing. This is not a time where he's exercising or showing signs of, of, of his power or his authority. This is the time where he's willingly laying down uh, his life. His, his, you see his active um, uh, obedience in keeping the law. Now we see him passively uh, uh, suffering for our sakes. And we'll see how that plays out in the rest of the text. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We have Pastor Sam Wergau helping us with Mark chapter 15. Take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, March 30th. We are studying Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. We have Pastor Sam Wergau with us. He serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus standing trial before Pilate. Much to Pilate's amazement, Jesus is silent. He is not defending himself, but is going forth as a lamb for the sake of us sinners to be the sacrifice to deliver us from our sin. The scene continues. We're Again, we're in this trial before Pilate. Mark is going to tell us about a custom that is that is out there among the Jews living at in this area under Roman jurisdiction at the time. There's this custom that that Pilate would release someone, a prisoner they asked for, and the one in particular that's brought up is a man called Barabbas. Take us into this custom and how how it plays into this the account here. Yeah, this is interesting. So I, there isn't a lot of evidence outside of the Gospels uh, about this custom, so we don't know a lot about it. But we can take the Gospels at their word, of course, because they do mention this, and and it and it is it sense that after during these feasts, right. Uh, he, this, uh, happened historically, this happened as a custom that is, it happened feast after feast. Now we don't know if it was the Passover feast, which is the one taking place now, or if it was all the Jewish feasts, but there was these times when Pilate would, uh, allow the release of one of those who is bound. Uh, and it would be the one that they ask for, or they beg for literally that, that word is beg or ask, right? So, so it's not just Pilate just gave, um, the release to just anyone. It's who they ask for. Now it's interesting because the they here will see that the ones that he he talks to is the is the crowd, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this crowd and such as we come up to it. So the they is a little bit ambiguous. Who is this they uh, that that could ask for this? But we see in this case, Jesus or uh, Pilate's going to be speaking to to the crowd, even the crowd that's distinct from or not just just completely uh composed of the of the high priest because we'll see their their role here the chief priest we'll see their role here uh as it plays into it so so this was a custom this was something that was established and and it just so happens that this is the case that this is the passover this is the feast pilot and you got to think if you're on pilot shoes here you have somebody here that's not making a defense that you don't find anything wrong with uh, uh and and the accusations that are being brought up it's just not adding up for Pilate, which is why he's not able to make a clear uh, judgment. And, and he's taking his time and questioning and figuring these things out. Well, then you have this custom. And so I don't know, um, you know, if it was the, if, if Pilate would have said, well, we got Barabbas and then we have Jesus. If he picked Barabbas out of this, like he picked the most notorious one and said, all right, who do you want to release this, this, this Barabbas, this rebel? Um, who had murdered 
uh, or or Jesus, right? But Barabbas is an interesting character in the whole picture of things because there is a great comparison contrast with Jesus and Barabbas. Uh, and then I also think to see us in the shoes of, of Barabbas, of course. Now, Barabbas, uh, uh, his name means son of the father, which is uh, very interesting. Abba is father, right? And you put bar before something in Hebrew, it's it's uh, the son of. So son of the father almost sounds kind of generic, son of the father. But I think it's it's really something to see that held up next to Jesus, who is the only begotten son of the father, right? The, the son of the father, uh, emphasis on the on the definite article there. And then you have Barabbas, who's son of the father. Um, uh, and, and, and you have the true son of the father who's going to actually take the place uh, and be the substitute for the son of the father for, for Barabbas. Barabbas will be released. Jesus will be handed over and die the death that Barabbas actually did deserve legally. Uh, and, and, and before God's law for that matter too. Um, and so, so that's really important to, to pick up on, to see this exchange that takes place, this exchange. I, I really think you could do a whole sermon on Barabbas, uh, especially on that term just son of the father, because I think that brings up a whole bunch of interesting points about original sin even, right? <laughs> Every son of the father is a murderer because of the sin that we inherit from our first father, that is, from Adam, right? Uh, Jesus is the only one who, yes, um, uh, true man uh, can trace his genealogy as Luke does back to, to Adam, but who is also the one who's born sinless as uh, also true God. He doesn't have an earthly father, but is born of the Virgin Mary. So again, something to kind of point out there when you're seeing this, uh, Jesus is the only begotten son of the father, Barabbas as the son of the father, but that the only begotten, the true son of the father is going to be the substitute for this grossly sinful and unworthy son of the father. Uh, that is um, really representation of all of all of mankind as Jesus goes to the cross as our substitute. I mean, it's, it's really quite amazing how this ends up being what is probably an unintentional sermon on behalf of Pilate, the chief priest, the crowd, Barabbas, and yet our Lord uses this situation to preach a marvelous truth that, I mean, Barabbas, and who knows who else is in prison at this time, but of all the prisoners there, Barabbas sure seems like one of the worst ones that would have been there. I mean, somebody that you wouldn't think that the chief priest would want hanging around, that the crowd wouldn't want hanging around, and certainly Pilate wouldn't want out there. I mean, the matter of insurrection, from Pilate's perspective, that's threatening Roman rule. From the Jewish perspective, <clears throat> that too is, is if Barabbas is going to come out and start a rebellion, that threatens their security and could lead Rome to come crush them more. So, I mean, of all people to get released, Barabbas seems like the least likely, and yet he's the one that, as you said, the true son of the father comes and stands in his place. And, and so it is for you and for me, those who, who certainly deserve punishment, right? This is, this is how the catechism see. We surely deserve nothing but punishment. Yeah, Jesus exactly. comes and stands in our place. Exactly, exactly. That relates as well, too, to another thing we see about Barabbas, a little detail, is that Barabbas is described as bound. Um, and that's what the Jews did to Jesus in his arrest. They bind him, right? And that's a 15-1. When they're handing him up to Pilate, they bind him. Uh, Vels brings this up in his commentary a little bit about this binding. He says, both bindings are for reasons of sin. In the case of Barabbas, it's because he had committed that sin. Why do you bind somebody? Because they're a dangerous criminal, right? He had committed the sin, murder, so he's bound. In the case of Jesus, who had, you know, who committed no sin, um, it's because he's taking that binding or that, you know, that, that sin upon ourself in order to make atonement for it. Yeah. And even being bound so that we would be set free, yeah, that yeah. we would be loosed, right? I mean, that's the word for forgiveness in Greek is often that word for loosing things, exactly. setting things free. And so, I mean, again, that, that great exchange we're, we're seeing very clearly. So, here's Barabbas. He's this murderer in the insurrection. The crowd says to Pilate, we want you to release somebody for us like you usually do. Pilate in verse nine, we start to, to get a little bit of insight into how he's thinking about what he's, what he's hearing in this trial. He asked them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? He's going to use that term there again. 
and Mark tells us that that Pilate even thinks that that there's some envy going on. They're not really telling him the full story. Yeah, Pilate's no dummy. He, I mean, he, he's a pretty shrewd governor and a pretty pretty intelligent intelligent ruler, uh, and, and he's he's picking up on this. And um, it's an interesting, yeah, he, this term envy, right? He he, he um, recognized that it was on a kind of envy that the chief priest. So so perhaps this idea of this episode with Barabbas is is really Pilate um, uh, calling their bluff, maybe that's the right word, or, or forcing them to try to show their hand about why they're actually handing Jesus over. Because if it was simply, uh, uh, you know, uh, out of envy, then maybe this would be the case where, oh, well, you know, we don't like Jesus, but we don't want Barabbas. But Pilate's going to see that, well, that's not going to be fully the case, that, that, that they're... Uh, it's going to go deeper than that. But but that idea of envy, it really is. I mean, we see that building up throughout the Gospels as Jesus is teaching and preaching and, and a lot of times teaching and preaching against what is wrong with the, 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 the Pharisees or the Jewish um, religious establishment at that point. He preaches the law and the law stings. I mean, we see this in John 8 uh, in particular when he's calling, you know, the Jews that are in the temple children of the devil. Right, and that's when they want to pick up stones and throw it at him. Uh, in John twelve, uh, the nineteen, the Pharisees said to one another, "You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world's gone after him. They're losing their footing, what they had built up, uh, which they could only maintain if Jesus is not the promised one. Jesus is not the Messiah, and and, and it seems like he is. Right, so it is out of envy that that this is taking place. Also in Mark's gospel too, and this is from Bell's uh, commentary on this too. The leaders f- did fear the crowds. We're told that in twelve twelve, Mark twelve twelve, on account of which they didn't try to seize Jesus right away after he told the parable of the wicked tenants, which was of the vineyard, which is speak- spoken against them. Uh, but what really has bothered them seems to be that Jesus' popularity is growing. Um, and, and we note the recognition of the crowd's amazement at his teachings uh, and the fact that the people heard him gladly, even as he was humiliating the leaders uh, in their argumentation. So this comes up again and again. He speaks as Jesus speaks as one with authority as opposed to the Pharisees or the, 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 chief, uh, the, the chief priests and such. So You mentioned the crowd and the role that, that they've played earlier in the gospel, particularly as the people or the chief priests are afraid of the crowd. Here in verse 11, it says the chief priest stirred up the crowd so yeah. that, that Pilate would get would release Barabbas. How? What's the interaction we're seeing here between the chief priest and the crowd now? It's very interesting. I think it's because they have Jesus kind of where they want him, right? And, and um, the, I guess this does play into kind of how our human nature is. We can be very afraid of something until we start feeling like we've gained control into something, right? So, so it looked like Jesus kind of had had the lead on stuff with the influence on the crowd. Um, but now that he's been betrayed and handed over, I mean, you think of the optics of this, right? How he looks, how Jesus looks up there and how the crowd is now viewing him. That is prime time for the chief priest to come in and sway uh, the crowd that might've been on the fence, might've even been following Jesus as they're now seeing uh, who this, this guy is. Uh, if, if he is that promised one, if he's one that in his ministry was so powerful that, you know, you were going after him, even though he was shaming us, uh, now look at him. We have the upper hand. And so, yeah, they, they, Mark says that they, they stirred up the crowd, which is interesting because I was looking at that word for stirred up. Um, this is the accusation in Luke's gospel that they make about Jesus that he stirs up the people uh, teaching throughout Judea from Galilee, even to this place. But that's exactly, you know, the false accusation they make against Jesus. But that is at the same time, exactly what the chief priests are doing They're, According to Mark's gospel, they're very influential in trying to get Barabbas released and get Jesus ultimately crucified. With that word about stirring up, you, you see the hypocrisy of these chief priests come out. Jesus has accused them of that previously, and, and it comes to, to full force here. And, and again, the, the, just the, the irrational hatred that comes out of the unbelief from, from these men is, is quite striking. We already saw it with the trial before the council, and it has only grown here, and it will only continue to grow as Jesus goes to the cross in the coming verses. With this crowd, and the chief priests stirring them up, 
you know, Pilate asks them, what do you want me to do for the king of the Jews, the one you call king of the Jews? If you're wanting me to release Barabbas, well, what about what about this one? The crowd now is going to cry out twice, crucify him. Now, one of the things that and this comes up in our hymnody, it, it comes up in sermons sometimes, is you've, you have a crowd earlier this week that said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you've got a crowd shouting, crucify him. What's going on here with, with this crowd or two crowds? How, how do we understand this? Right. And there's a difference of opinion, I guess, on this. Some some kind of hold that this is the same crowd and they've just been completely swayed one way or the other. I, I don't think so. Uh, I think you're dealing with, as you do with all situations. And I mean, if you've uh, you know, been on social media or anything like that, you know that there are people who have differences of opinions and they're very vocal about it. So the same <laughs> thing would be about Jesus too. Uh, you know, I mean, this is the case where you do have those who are following him. You have it. And now, now you do have your, his disciples, right? His closest ones who have fled and left and right. And, and, and Peter even who has denied him for sure. Right. But they're also not the ones yelling, crucify him. So there, there are those that, that are followers of our Lord, disciples of our Lord, that Palm Sunday crowd in Mark 11, 9, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. But they're silent at this point. And, and I believe it's a, it's a different crowd. Uh, not saying that you couldn't have some that were swayed one way or the other, because, you know, things aren't quite cut black and white in that way in our lives. Um, but I think you do, this doesn't mean that you have everyone backing up the chief priest. You certainly don't because, I mean, you have, you have you know, Joseph of Arimathea later on, right? Who's going to, to take the body of Jesus and, and such. Uh, but what you do have here is the resounding cry and demand of this crowd that this is what they want. This is what they desire. Crucify him. And even what they'll say, um, uh, and I'm blanking on which gospel it is. His blood be on us and on our children. Right? We'll take the the what 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 the punishment for this. Uh, you know this this is what we want. This is what we desire. The Son of God to be crucified. Now, so so I think it's two different crowds. I think in particular what you have too though is we shouldn't we shouldn't be thinking that that all of Jesus' popularity has been swayed uh, or taken away. That is that the that everybody who followed him has now turned against him. They have, as we see with the disciples, abandoned him, and no one's stepping up to to um, fight for him or defend him. Uh, but what you do have in Luke's gospel, Luke twenty three, uh, when Jesus leaves Pilate and is heading to to the cross, you do have this in twenty three twenty seven. It says there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So even as our Lord is going to the cross. Um, there are those whose cry was not crucify him, but who are seeing their Lord being led up to be crucified, and they are powerless, powerless to do anything against it. Yeah, I mean, certainly there could have been those that shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday and then shouted crucify him on Good Friday. We talked a little bit about with the denial of Peter that you know Peter goes from just bravado, I'll die with you, Jesus, and then in a matter of hours, he's saying, I don't know this guy, and he's even cursing himself, maybe even cursing Jesus. So it's not impossible that that there were members of both crowds who were the same, and the difference being Jesus riding into Jerusalem as a king, and here Jesus being convicted for being that king. I mean, it, it's not impossible that there are members of, are of the same crowd. But I do think that a, a careful reading of the Gospels indicates, as you were saying, there are differences of opinion concerning Jesus. Some are faithful who come with him into the city from Galilee along with him. Others there in Jerusalem probably heard him preach and, and started to, you know, they were intrigued by it. And then others in Jerusalem were always kind of along with the chief priests anyways and, and weren't so sure about this Jesus guy. And now to begin shouting crucify him isn't that far of a stretch when they see how things have played out. How do, how do, we, how do we take that as, as Christians, just the idea of, of these people crying out crucify him all of a sudden? Right. I think, I think it helps to build a great contrast, which I think really does play into how the Gospels portray things. How even our liturgy portrays things if on Palm Sunday in particular, especially if your church has done Palm Sunday with the procession of palms leading into the Passion account. Right. There's there's kind of this clear it, it, 
if you're familiar with it, when you, when you have a Palm Sunday uh, procession, a lot of times our liturgy does it this way, where, where you start in the back of the church with either the people gathered in the back or, or um, sometimes the kids are all gathered in the back and they all have their palm branches and the crucifix and the pastor lead the way forward, processional cross, singing all glory, lot and honor, right? Uh, and and it's 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 the Hosanna Hosanna the the hymn that that is this triumphal entry of our Lord as we enter church, um, but the Palm Sunday service uh, the liturgy is built this way. Uh, we kind of see it designed at least in Lutheran service book and the rubrics is once you get there in there, there's a time of silence, and then there's uh, the collect for Palm Sunday which speaks about the death of Christ. And so you have this transition and then goes right into the readings which relate to the crucifixion, either uh, the reading of, um, of um, Matthew 27 uh, for the one-year lectionary, or I think uh, the, the, the three-year lectionary, it's whatever uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, whatever, whatever uh, gospel you're on, reading the Passion account, sometimes it's lengthy reading the Passion account. So again, the, the understanding of this contrast uh, between Jesus being the triumphal king entering into Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David, and then being the, the suffering servant. What's wonderful, though, is as Christians, this is our theology of the cross. It's not like he's at one moment, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed to see who comes in the name of the Lord, and somehow now some tragic accident has happened, and now he's suffering. This is all part of his triumphal entry. This is all part of his work of salvation. This is He's our king through it all. He's our king when he rides into Jerusalem. And he's our king. He's the king when they yell, crucify him, crucify him. And he's the king who hangs on the cross because he's the king who's winning his kingdom by being uh, tried before Pilate, suffering under Pontius Pilate, being crucified, dead and buried, and then rising from the dead. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I mean, on, on Palm Sunday, even what they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, words from Psalm 118. When you look at Psalm 118, you see all of this that's there. I mean, what Jesus, he's the sacrifice that's bound, as, as Psalm 118 puts it. The This is the day the Lord has made the stone that the builders rejected. That's all Psalm 118. Palm Sunday leads to this. It's the same king. He's still being the king right here. And, and even though the, the crowd, Pilate, they don't understand what that means. Jesus truly is the king at this time. It, it's quite something, you know, Pilate... You get this back and forth. We got about five minutes here, Pastor. We're going to, sure. to wrap up this text. Mm -hmm. You know, you get this back and forth, and and it's really Pilate. You kind of get the sense that he doesn't want to crucify Jesus, but he's getting his hand forced. The crowd has gone beyond any sort of rational discussion, and they're just shouting, "Crucify him!" Finally, Pilate just goes with what what they want. Take us into the the final scene. Yeah, so it says he's wishing uh, to satisfy to satisfy the crowd, which is which is interesting. You you see, Pilate's not doing anything rash uh, throughout this, but I think Pilate's between a rock and a hard place, if you will. And and um, this this gospel doesn't talk about it in particular, but uh, Pilate just sees he's getting nowhere. Rather, things are actually getting worse. That a riot it, it seems like it's going to happen because of the crowd, because of everything that's going on. So so. Pilate's hand, yeah, seems kind of forced here. And so he's wishing to make satisfaction, satisfying the crowd, giving into their demands. This is the, this is the thing. This is, this is just the key to it because everything that's transpiring is, first of all, um, you know, diabolical in a certain sense, right? Because this is, this is the evil one at work here, entering into Judas for the initial betrayal at work through the crowd, through the chief priests and everything to see the son of man die. And yet we see as this is going by that this is the work. The devil's very short-sighted in all of this. This is the work of God for the salvation of mankind. So that even what is meant for evil is being worked for the greatest good in the atonement that's being made in that Jesus is scourged and then he is delivered to be crucified. And as we know, crucified for, for the sins of the world as that lamb who goes to slaughter, uh, as the one who goes and makes atonement uh, for the sins of the world. Tell us a little bit about the, the scourging. We still have about three minutes. Oh, here. sure. Yeah. The, the scourging that Pilate commands. Yeah. So this was a, uh, 
custom in the Roman in Roman times that dealt with a lot of times it would be used for interrogation. Um, and, and, and in John's gospel, it kind of brings it up where he says, I'm not going to crucify him, but I'm going to go punish him in this way. Uh, and then I'll release him. Right. And, and what they're demanding is, no, he, they want they want death, not just capital, you know, not just this this uh, scourging. The scourging was pretty bad uh, in in and of itself. It wasn't it wasn't a, a, a light treatment that took place here. In fact, when uh, the uh, scourging was basically when you'd have the um, the Latin is uh, flagellum, flagellum, and this is uh, the whip composed of uh, some have described as leather thongs loaded with bone and metal, and and it was meant to cause as much pain and uh, damage as can be done, but not kill the person, right? And so a lot of times when these uh, um, when the scourging would take place. People would be the flesh would be ripped all the way to the bone. Uh, I mean, this is a lot of the imagery we have of Jesus even before he goes to the cross, being bloodied, the crown of thorns on his head, and, and what have you. It's all taking place that he's being, uh, and this is all the punishment related to this is what our sins deserve, right? Uh, the cross and everything that leads up to the cross, with what the eyes can see in the uh, in the torment that he encounters, but also what the eyes can't see in that. Um, here, uh, our Lord is suffering the very forsakenness and wrath of God, which we'll see further as we get into the words of our Lord on the cross and interpreting those as, and understanding those as being Christ's substitutionary atonement and Christ's suffering in our place. But it even takes place before Pontius Pilate. Uh, this is what murderers get. This is what uh, people who, who um, uh, break the law get. And yet, our Lord, who didn't do that, is the one who suffers it. Yeah, all for you, all for me. This is what our Lord does in his suffering under Pontius Pilate. Pastor Sam Wergau is the pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us this morning with Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, it's always, always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 15 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.